Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. As we approach the start of another school year, I want to take this opportunity to thank all the teachers in GMTA who work tirelessly for the success of their students, nurturing the next generation of musicians and educators. Thank you for your remarkable legacy and heart for this profession. Today, I am joined by a colleague who fits this description. I met him several years ago at a festival where we were both adjudicators, and I know that he has contributed to the profession continuously through just such efforts, encouraging and building up young musicians at these critical junctures and events. So let me welcome Jericho Vasquez to the podcast. Hello, Jericho. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's just get started with a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Well, I am artist in residence and professor of music at Shorter University. Uh, my responsibility is to teach the piano majors. I teach a few piano secondaries, teach all, anything related to piano other than piano pedagogy and class piano. So that includes piano accompanying, piano ensemble, chamber music, piano literature every few years, and also uh, music appreciation every once in a while. So that's really my responsibility. And of course, you know, as artists in residence is uh, to go out to promote the program, to recruit students, to network with uh, GMTA teachers and colleagues in other universities. That's it. Now tell me about how you got started in music. Uh, how did you become Professor Vasquez? I started out at seven years old. I started out piano and I actually begged my family, my parents to get me started. The only teacher in town was my oldest brother's godmother. And she did not want to take me at five. And so I had to wait until about seven years old to start with her she thought that I was too young and she didn't really want to do it at that young age. And so I got started with her at seven, you know, and had such incredible enthusiasm for music. And I think part of it is because of my father, who was a, a music lover. He was a clarinetist, but he was also a dentist. And I don't think I've heard a single day where he wasn't working and not playing classical music in, in the background all the time. And so you know, I knew symphonies, overtures, piano music from early on. And so I, I continued on learning the piano and all the way through high school. And then uh, we moved here to the United States from the Philippines. I got a scholarship at a, a small music school in California. And I continued on learning the piano. And then, of course, you know, when I applied for college, I thought, well, maybe, you know, music would, wouldn't be so bad. And Fortunately enough, I got a, a full ride at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And so I, I went in and the rest is history from there on. Can you tell us a little bit about um, piano education and music education in the Philippines? Um, you're the first Filipino musician that we have spoken to in the podcast. So if you can give us a glimpse into that world, that would be great. Well, in the Philippines, it is not encouraged a whole lot for some reason or another Part, I think part of it is because in, in a lot of Asian countries, there, there's sort of a 
I get, I guess, uh, looking down into the profession of music. Most of the time, you know, people would go to uh, medicine or law or engineering or something that will make money. Uh, and music wasn't one of those. But there are, you know, occasional people that will go into music professionally. And certainly uh, the Philippines has established a very, very good reputation in producing some wonderful pianists, you know, in the university system. And, and so, you know, when I took piano lessons when I was young, it was more really for fun. And it was more for the joy of just learning the instrument. So what was the dynamic like for you and for your parents, especially since you talked about your father's love of music, but he was a dentist, you know, as we might predict for a lot of um, Asian people growing up in that culture, we might have a love of music, but then we're encouraged to go into another field. So what was their reaction when you decided to pursue music? Well, they were very, very supportive of me going into music. And I think part of that is because it wouldn't cost them to uh, send me to college <laughs> because I got a full ride. But then even after I finished my undergrad, they always encouraged me to think about the possibility of going to something else. And then I finally gave them, gave them the talk that, you know what, I really have invested so much in this and I just want to continue on. And after that, they never mentioned it again. They supported me all the way to grad school. They were incredibly loving and supportive in everything that I do and were always there in all of my recitals and all of my performances. And they were always, you know, very happy with me. Yeah. So you said that you're at Shorter College. Is it Shorter College or Shorter University? Shorter University. Shorter University. Now, how long have you been there? I am just about to start my 14th year here at Shorter. So I started here in 2009. Was Shorter University your very first job? Yes, it was. I taught, you know, part-time uh, in Houston uh, as soon as I graduated with my doctorate. I did some adjunct work at the University of Houston, uh, main campus, University of Houston downtown. And I, I was very happy to teach privately. And I, in fact, I did. I, I taught for seven years. I built up a great studio in Houston. But one thing that I missed teaching privately was that I wasn't performing as much. I wasn't challenging myself to prepare recital programs. And so after a while, I just thought, you know, I'd really like to do something else. I'd like to be able to do both teaching, you know, anyone at different ages, but also being able to perform because I, I think it was essential for me uh, in my growth as a musician to be able to challenge myself. Hmm. So, so then at that point, you decided to start performing or applying for university positions. How did that work? I just, believe it or not, it was more out of desperation, I would say. There was a situation that happened at the University of Houston, which I probably should not get into so much. But after that situation, you know, it didn't pan out. The, the job did not pan out. I was desperate to get out of Houston. I really wanted to go somewhere where I could be of use. I could be, you know, I could be proud of myself and at the same time do what I what I love to do. And so that's I, I think was the trigger why I really wanted to apply somewhere else. And plus, I think the other the other uh, reason was I, I got married two years before that, and my wife and I were really wanting to start a family. We wanted to get out of the city. And so it was just uh, a perfect opportunity for me to move to Rome, which is a great place to raise a family. 
Yeah. So can you tell us a little more about, I think that you have a collegiate chapter of MTNA at Shorter University. Can you tell us a little bit about that chapter? Did you start that chapter? No, actually, I did not. I, uh, that was actually started by my former colleague, Rebecca Jordan Miller, who came here a year after I came. And we have been involved with, you know, MTNA for a long time. And so she said, you know, why don't we start an, uh, an MTNA chapter? And so we did. And that has been in existence since 2010. Uh, and I'm glad that, you know, my, my colleague now, Amy Neal, has been such a wonderful, wonderful uh, supporter of that and my, my co-advisor with that organization as well. So we've had a lot of students that have been members and we have always, you know, gone through the GMTA conference with a group of students. Uh, several times our students have presented in uh, sessions. And so we're very happy with, uh, certainly with our chapter here at Shorter. Yeah, as someone who teaches at a university that does not have a collegiate chapter, but is looking into that possibility, what are some of the events that you guys do as a collegiate chapter together so that it's meaningful and impactful for the students? Okay, here at Shorter, what we do is we do fundraising. And the main fundraising that we have for the student chapter is what we call the Hymn Festival. We use that unrelated to the Rome Music Teachers Association, but we promote it with uh, the teachers of the Rome Music Teachers Association. Uh, and so they send in students. It's really a very low-key fundraising uh, because the students come in, they play their two hymns, they get critique. And, and then they get a ribbon. For us, I mean, that is really essential for, you know, for, because the students are involved in monitoring, in uh, checking in the students. And also every once in a while, they would be involved in, in recruiting the students who would participate. That's great. Thank you for sharing that idea um, to me and to our listeners. So I'm curious, what are some challenges that you have encountered as a professional musician? Over the years, I think one of the things that I have encountered as a, you know, sort of a challenge is getting students to listen more. For some reason or another, you know, as there's more access to internet, to streaming services, students listen less. And, you know, that's probably one of the things that I always encourage the student is to, to listen more to different pianists, different musicians, different performances, orchestral music, chamber music, accompanying, or vocal music, because that's really how someone develops a palette for what they like, what they don't like. And once, you know, they develop that ear for what is good, what is beautiful, what they like, then they can incorporate that into their performance, into their playing. And I think a lot of the students are a little bit more spoon-fed rather than having the curiosity and, and, and wonder to search for themselves and develop their own personality by taking in what's good about other performances, what they like and what they don't like. And so that has been, always been a challenge to me. And so I think part of the reason that, that, that I, you know, whenever I teach my piano literature class, I always make a project of what, what I call the Beethoven project uh, in which the students would have to learn all of the 32 Beethoven sonatas with all of the opus numbers, the keys, how many movements there are and be able to recognize them. And what we do is we do the first 15 sonatas the first semester and then 
the 17 sonatas the second semester. And so that by the end of the year, they have a knowledge, you know, a more comprehensive knowledge of the Beethoven sonatas, which are some of the greatest, you know, pieces in piano literature. But in a way, I'm forcing them to do it <laughs> because it's really good for them. And so that's probably one of the challenges is, you know, getting them to listen. Yeah, just to clarify, when you say that you want them to know the Beethoven sonatas, it's not like they're reading through it and playing that it's they are listening to recordings. No, no, I just want them to be able to recognize. So basically what we do with Piano Lit is, you know, we go through uh, different pieces, we go through different composers, but on top of their regular listening in the class on their own, they need to be able to listen to the Beethoven sonatas in the course of the whole year. And I include identification of those Beethoven sonatas in their exams. Mm. So that's really on their own. Yeah. So uh, earlier you you said that it was interesting that with all these like access to recordings and streaming that students are actually listening less. Why do you think that is? What is causing these students to listen less even though there's greater access? I do think that it's because it's easy. You know, and sometimes I mean I remember being, you know, a young a young man and not having a lot of money. And really, you know, is spending what what I can saving up, and then is spending what what I was able to save to go to a CD store, Tower Records at that time, and you know, is scavenging and really looking for for recordings. And at that time, it was very you know, CDs were very expensive. They were they were like twenty dollars, twenty five dollars, and then of course it became cheaper a lot later on. But I think it's it's partly that the fact that you know. Music is so, so much available right now through YouTube, through Spotify, that it's become so casual for them to listen to rather than actually searching. So I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that's part of it. I don't so, think that's, that explains everything, though. Yeah, that seems like that would be a really difficult problem to solve because obviously we can't start charging more for the music so that our audiences and our students will suddenly learn to value it more. And there is, I think there is value to making it more accessible so that you don't have to be middle class or upper class to be able to afford to attend concerts or purchase CDs. But any any other suggestions for how we can nurture that excitement and that love of listening in our students um, beyond actually, what is impossible? Yeah, actually, what, what we have started here at Shorter University with my colleague, uh, my theory colleague, Enoch Jacobus, was we actually started a listening club last year. And what we do is we basically promote it to the faculty and, and encourage the students to come. And what we do is we just throw in a topic, a subject. Let's say, I think that one of the first subjects that we looked at was death in music. And so we brought in, you know, like the Chopin Funeral Sonata, the aria from Dido and Aeneas, and something else. So Dark Vader, John Williams. And we did that and looked at how composers look at death and how they express that in music. What are the similarities? What are, what are the differences? And actually that had uh, brought in a co- you know, many, many students and were very interested, just very interested in, uh, in exploring and listening more. Mm-hmm. So something like that, like a listening club would be very, very interesting 
you know, to start with the music students. Yeah, was it voluntary attendance or was yeah. it? Yeah, it was voluntary. Wow, that's fantastic. I love this idea because it, a lot of times it feels a bit like a catch-22. You know, earlier you talked about requiring students to listen and something about forcing them to listen kind of takes away the spontaneity and the joy of just like voluntarily going into that listening. So if you can create that environment where they want to be there and they volunteer their time to be there, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that idea. Sure. So can you describe to us your journey as a teacher? How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? All right. I think I would say that my key influence was my undergrad teacher, Dr. Charles Ash. Uh, I think in many ways, he is the greatest influence on me with regards to developing a very fine technique on the piano, a very free and solid technique, and in the service of being able to play these magnificent works. I think what he imparted to me also was a sense of humility a sense of humility in studying these great masterworks and digging deep into them so that you can understand, so that you can learn, so that, you know, so that you can elevate yourself in a way that is very different from, you know, just playing casually. I think it's the, it's the searching is one thing that I would say my teacher really imparted to me. Mm, That's beautiful. What a wonderful legacy to continue. Mm -hmm. So um, you are someone that I think is quite active as an adjudicator. Um, I've seen you around the state and around the region adjudicating. So I'm a little curious, just from an adjudicator's perspective, what do you see as the key points of success that allows a student, you know, a young student or an older collegiate student to be successful on piano? I think, first of all, I mean, talent is you know, is a must. And I think God in his wisdom has given everyone a talent. And it is our responsibility as teachers to be able to probe that, to see that, and then to figure out how to develop that in a young musician. I think the other thing also that is an essential element is curiosity, but also this sense of wonder, this sense of imagination, and a lot of the times, those cannot, you know, cannot be taught. And I, I, think, I think they can be guided and they can be honed in in some sense. But certainly, I've, I have found over the years in my teaching that there are certain students that have an innate ability to figure out nuances and inflection and also this sense of rubato even in, in, in performance Certainly, I think as a teacher, we can, we can guide them. We can teach them to explore that even more. For those who do not have that, we can work on whatever weakness that they have and, 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 and solidify that and, and bring something that is beautiful in their playing. Because I, I, I really do believe that everyone has something to offer in music, you know? Yeah, great. Thank you for that reflection. Mm-hmm. What do you see should be the role of classical music in society in the 21st century. I think we kind of started talking about this in terms of listening and recording and the the kind of decline in curiosity, but is there a future 
in today's world and, you know, in the next 10, 20 years for classical music? Oh, absolutely. I don't think, you know, classical music is dying at all. I think classical music in, in the term itself, classic, it, it is enduring. It will go on. It will be performed. The, you know, the music will be performed for many generations to come. I do think that sometimes in conservatories, there is sort of holding back into exploring other things other than Mozart, Beethoven, and Chopin. I do think that it should be that we should include 20th and 21st century music and study them diligently, study them with such passion that we put in in studying Mozart, you know, and these great masters. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we do enough of that. I mean, certainly for me, I try to do it. And certainly for me, I try to challenge myself to learn more current music because I think it's, it's really essential for me in my growth as a musician. And we should be doing that. We should be encouraging our students to perform more recent compositions because they're also fantastic. They're just even, you know, in many ways, some of them are even more beautiful than some of the works of the great masters. Hmm. Do you have favorite contemporary composers that you can recommend to us? Oh, yes. I've been very much in love with George Crumb the last few years. I've uh, been fascinated with his music. And so I am exploring his music quite a bit and, you know, did a couple of presentations on extended techniques and avant-garde techniques. And also I have incorporated uh, some of his music into my recitals. Uh, actually, a few years ago, I played uh, A Little Sweet for Christmas. And I, I'm also working on, in maybe somewhere down the road, I, I'd like to work on a few of other, his other compositions for the piano. So that's certainly one composer that I'm in love with at the moment. What has the audience reception been like um, when you perform George Crumb? They have actually loved it. It's been fascinating. A Little Sweet for Christmas I played about three, four years ago. And what I did is I actually incorporated the paintings that inspired the music. I have found that, you know, in performing that, that there's an extra dimension that the audience understands when you meld in different medias in performance so that it's unexpected and that makes them more curious and more fascinated with, you know, with a recital rather than just going to a traditional one. Yeah. And as someone that encourages uh, more study of 20, 20th and 21st century um, compositions, I assume that you must encourage your students to learn it. Do, are they receptive to learning more contemporary works? Somewhat. <laughs> some of them are. Uh, some of them are more in love with it than others. But I I think the exploration, it's always the first step that's hard for them, uh, just as it was hard for me when I was, you know, when I was uh, studying music, studying piano. I don't think I really fell in love with 20th century music until I got to my grad school. And it was because of a teacher who taught it in such a way that it was wonderful, it was beautiful, it was exciting, that really caught my attention. And so I started spending more time in learning about, you know, more contemporary composers. Uh, in fact, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I did it on a composer by the name of Emma Ludimer, 
And she was a person that I knew as an undergrad in, at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She was a professor of uh, compositions. And uh, she had composed uh, a concerto for uh, the teacher that I studied with. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. And so when I finally did my doctoral dissertation, I wanted to do it on her. And she had you know, composed a lot of compositions for the piano and a lot of them use extended techniques. And so it's, it's always great to introduce someone like her to my students because she's still alive, you know, she's still composing. And I think it's, it should be, we should be as teachers incorporating that. We should be teaching our students not only the love of classic music, but also contemporary music. Was she, did she compose a set of pieces titled like calendar or the year or something that had like a series of months listed? Do you know? I don't think so. Um, she has composed a, quite a few teaching pieces. Uh, there's a, a set of pieces called the Space Suites. There's a couple of pieces that are really for elementary to early intermediate published by FJF. And, and then, of course, she has sonatas, works for two pianos, two piano concertos that are 40 years apart. And then she has several very advanced pieces that are, you know, quite challenging on the piano. Okay, so it sounds like she has quite a range of difficulty in her compositions. Oh, but certainly. What, what's that level for that easiest level that can be a point of entry for students? I would say that would be elementary. They're actually quite easy. Yeah. Great. Then we'll have to look her up. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you so much. So this is our very last question. What okay. advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? I would say explore everything that you can find in music. Uh, I think my if I, were, if I had any regret in my career, it was the fact that I was so focused on piano that I didn't realize that teaching was an option. Collaborative playing was an option. Accompanying uh, voice majors or, or vocalists and instrumentalists is an option. Teaching music history is an option. I was so focused on being a pianist that I didn't look at those until I was forced to look at those as I was doing my graduate work because I had to learn how to teach uh, in order to support myself. And so I, what I would say to anyone who's wanting to go into music, expand your horizon, make sure that you are not so focused on piano alone, open up opportunities for yourself to learn chamber music, to accompany singers, to love music history, love music theory, love research, because that is what's going to make you more marketable mm. eventually. That's a wonderful reminder to us as teachers also to make sure that we are nurturing students that are more well-rounded and holistic in their yes. education and providing those opportunities and exposure to them beyond just our Bach, Beethoven, Chopin. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that advice for our cool. young listeners and for sharing that advice for our teachers. Well, 
Jericho, this has been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed getting to know you better. And as always, I, I look forward to seeing you at our various state events. Hopefully I'll see you at our conference and perhaps we'll run into each other at various festivals and adjudication events. Thank you so much for your service in our organization. And thank you so much for your time uh, to talk with me today. With that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.